Our lesson of the day comes from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. Here again, the Word of God. And He made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, would you speak now the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, your grace to us through this passage of Scripture. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I first really started growing as a Christian, which I would say was really in my uh, high school and college years, uh, one passage that really helped me understand the gospel, that really helped me understand the grace of God, it was this text in Ephesians chapter 2, especially the first 10 verses we just read. Uh, I memorized this passage. I marinated in this passage. Every time I read this passage, I discovered new, some, you know, some new insight, some new aspect of God's grace I hadn't seen before. It's a passage that I think sums up the gospel so well. It's got the bad news, yes, to give us the background, and it's got the good news shining forth. Uh, it's a passage that really defines for us what it means to be a Christian. It defines who we are and how we are to live as the church. Everything is right here in these verses. It's a wonderful, very compact summary of so much uh, that, that, that's found elsewhere in Scripture, but put here in a very compact form. So let's look at these verses. Um, wherever you're coming from this morning, you know, some of us come into church on a Sunday morning and, and we'll have, you know, coming off a good week and uh, you're brimming with confidence and with joy. Others of you come into uh, a Sunday morning service and your life is full of trials and you're feeling beaten up and beaten down. It really doesn't matter where you're coming from, whether you're coming from a high place or a low place. Hearing the story of God's grace to you is always a good thing. It will further you in your joys. It will help you understand and, and, and cope with your trials. It's just what we need wherever we are uh, this moment, this morning. I think the easiest way to understand this passage is to really understand it's got a it's got a twofold theme to it. Really, two themes that go together. Uh, this passage describes who we are by nature, you could say, and who we are by grace. Who we are in Adam. 
at who we are in Christ, who we are in sin, and who we have become because of God's mercy. Uh, that's really what this passage is about. It's the good news and it's the bad news here tied together. Uh, obviously, you have to start with the bad news. That's really where Paul starts in this section. Uh, Paul is giving us here his expert diagnosis of who we are uh, in Adam, who we are by nature in terms of our fallen nature, who we are outside of Christ, what it means to live outside of the reach of God's covenant, of God's people. And so he says in verse 1, we were dead in sins and trespasses, not merely sick, but dead. That is to say, spiritually lifeless, spiritually dead. Dead to God, dead to the things of God. Spiritually dead and, and therefore unable to do anything about our condition. See, the problem with sinners is not just that we sin, that we perform acts of sin, but sin is a condition. And it's a kind of spiritual death. The problem with sin is not just the things we do, but it's the things we don't do, and indeed the things we can't do. Things we can't do because we are in bondage to sin. We are dead in sin. We can do nothing to make ourselves right with God. We are spiritual corpses. Now, this doesn't mean everybody is as bad as they could be. It doesn't mean everybody's equally bad. Perhaps some of those cor corpses are more decayed, more rotten than others. But Paul says this is what we are outside of Christ. This is what we are by nature now in a fallen world. We are dead to God, spiritually dead. Death in Scripture really means separation from God. We're cut off from God. God's the source of all life and light and love. We're cut off from those things. We're cut off from God. Left to ourselves, we are cut off from God. We're dead. And yet, we were very active for dead people. Paul says we were the walking dead, really. We were walking about very active. We're dead men walking. Verse 2, he says, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of the prince of the air. So we're not just spiritually dead. You could say we're spiritually dominated, spiritually enslaved. We're dead to God, but we're alive to all kinds of wickedness. This is who we are left to ourselves. In Paul's analysis of the human condition, Paul's analysis of the human race, even the most decent, upstanding citizens who are not in Christ, those who are cut off from, from God, are still slaves of wickedness. They may look like very moral people, but they don't do what they do for God's glory. It, it doesn't spring from a love for God and a love for neighbor in the way that it should. And so Paul's saying here, the human race left to itself is dead under the reign of sin, under the dominion. Of sin. Really, this is a, another way of saying what Paul says in Romans 5, uh, verse 12, where he says, Sin entered the world through one man, obviously Adam, and through him death spread to all. We're all spiritually dead. Even as we walk about this world doing what we do, we are spiritually dead, cut off from God. And it's interesting here that Paul describes our course of life as a walk. That word walk really describes a, a lifestyle or a pattern of behavior. So even though we were dead, we're very much alive. It's just we're walking in the wrong direction. 
Moving away from God and away from righteousness. Indeed, Paul goes on, he describes fallen humans living according to the course of this world. The world now in its fallen and rebellious state. That's the problem. We just go with the flow of the world following every rebellious fad and trend that comes down the pike. This is why you know, it's, it's, it's easy to sometimes ask. I did this in the announcements this morning. Do we live in a culture that is hostile to the Christian faith? And in so many ways, the answer is yes. Why is that? Why is it that so much of our media and our music and our entertainment and our politics all seem to be so godless? And there's no doubt it influences us, even in the church. Why is it? Why is it so godless? Well, Paul here says it's the course of this world. The world system has turned against God. And so cultures are in rebellion against God. Paul says this is manifest in our walk. We walk according to the course of this world. But then Paul goes even deeper. At a deeper level, it's the work of Satan. There's a satanic element. There is satanic activity in the world. Paul describes Satan here as the prince of the power of the air. Satan, it seems Paul is saying, is at work in that space between heaven and earth. And he has some kind of authority there, and he has some kind of influence there. He no longer has access to heaven, as he did, say, in the time of Job. He's been cast down. Jesus said, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. He doesn't have access to heaven anymore. But still, at least for this, and of course, he's not going to remain where he is forever. We're shown in the end that he's ultimately cast into the lake of fire. But at least for now, Satan continues to exert influence and have some kind of uh, control over people and nations outside of Christ. See, behind our captivity to the world is captivity to the devil who deceives and who blinds. Satan is at work. He's not, uh, he, he's not uh, in charge of everything, obviously. He's under God's sovereignty. And Christ is Lord over all. But we should not discount the work of Satan in the world. He's at work. Paul says he's at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul here describes the wicked as if they were sons of Satan because they've rejected God. What are they? They don't have God as their father. So who is their father? Well, in the scriptures, there's really only two alternatives. If God's not your father, then in some sense, Satan is. Think about Jesus who told the Pharisees very much to their shock and their chagrin that they were sons of their father, the devil. And that's why they acted like the devil in their lying and murderous ways. They're the last people who would have been suspected of being sons of wickedness, sons of the devil, but they are. Paul here uses that expression, sons of disobedience. The Old Testament scriptures talk about sons of Belial. People who are worthless, who live lives of wickedness, who belong to Satan. And, and Paul's saying, that's what we are. That's who we are. In Adam, we are in bondage to Satan. And we follow the devil right into hell itself. That's where we're headed. This is what characterizes everyone outside of Christ. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone outside of Christ is on Satan's side. Everyone is dead in sin. 
Note the pronouns Paul's been using here. Verse 1, he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, he says, in which you once walked. The you there probably refers to the Gentiles, Gentiles who have come into the Ephesian church. And he's saying, this is who you once were when you were pagan Gentiles. But then in verse 3, he shifts. He says, among whom we... That's probably we Jews, since Paul is Jewish. We Jews once conducted ourselves in the same way. See, this is the problem. Israel had been set apart from the nations as God's holy people. But what happened, they continually fell into the ways of the nations, living no differently than the nations, living according to the course of the world. This is the problem again and again with Israel. They live no differently than the Gentiles. The prophets constantly critique Israel for falling into the same sins as the nations. And Paul goes on to explain that. He says, we, so we Jews, lived according to the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. They were a fleshly people. Now, flesh here doesn't just refer to the body as if the body were bad. That's clearly not true. The body's part of God's good creation. Nor does it even refer to bodily desires as if those bodily desires were the problem. Desires for food and sleep and sex predate the fall and are not wrong in themselves. The problem is not our bodies. The problem is not even our bodily desires as such. The problem here is identified as the flesh because since the fall, we have turned away from God, turned against God, and that term flesh is used to describe desires, whether bodily desires or or we could say also Paul brings the mind into it. Our minds are alienated from God as well. Our minds are fleshly. Our minds are opposed to God. The flesh is just a way of saying humanity arrayed against God, opposed to God and His purposes. Humanity that has fallen away from God. That's flesh in this sense. It's humanity that is weak and broken because of sin, that is subject to death because of sin. That's the flesh Paul's talking about here. Flesh is humanity opposed to God. And Paul says we were just fulfilling our desires, living according to our fleshly desires, our anti-God desires. And so Paul goes on to say we, we Jews, are by nature children of wrath. This is who we are, who we have become. And then he says, just as the others. So certainly the Jews would have liked to have thought of themselves as right with God. And the Gentiles as under the wrath of God. But Paul here says, no, all of us, even we Jews, are under God's wrath just as the others. In other words, Jew and Gentile are one in their rebellion to God. Later in the passage, in beginning in verse 11... Paul's going to go on and show how Jew and Gentile can now be made one in Christ. A a different kind of oneness, a good oneness between Jew and Gentile. But here it's a oneness in sin and rebellion. And we should not just uh, speed past Paul's mention of divine wrath. Objects of divine wrath. Wrath can mean a lot of different things in Scripture. Sometimes it simply means God giving up people, abandoning people, giving them over to their sin. But it can also be God actively punishing people for their sin. God's wrath is His righteous anger against sin. It is the reflex of His holiness and His justice against sin. God is righteous in His wrath 
against human sin. God is right to be angry with humanity, with Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles were divided from one another in certain ways, but they were united in sin, united in rebellion. And so together they have become objects of God's wrath. They're in the same sinking boat under the wrath of God. See, apart from God, what do we do? We live for ourselves. We're cut off from God. We're dead to real truth and goodness and beauty. We're dead to God. Paul's saying, this is the human condition. May not even always look this way. You know, some people like to say, oh, sin is the one doctrine that can be empirically established, the one Christian doctrine that we can observe. Well, yeah, sure. But still, Paul's diagnosis here goes far beyond just empirical observations because a lot of people who are outside of the church look like pretty good, decent people. You wouldn't necessarily think, oh, that person is an object of God's wrath. That person is spiritually dead. That person has Satan at work in them. But Paul is saying, this is the case. This is what is true of humanity. This is the human condition apart from the gospel. Dead, depraved, condemned. That's our plight. That's our predicament. Well, is that the end of it all? Is that all there is? The bad news? No. Verse 4, Paul says, But God. And those are indeed some of the sweetest words in all of Scripture. But God. This was our condition. We were objects of wrath. But God. But God intervened. But God stepped in. But the living God has chosen to rescue and redeem and resurrect dead sinners. The only hope for the dead is resurrection. And that is precisely what God has done. Paul says you were dead in sins and trespasses. You were objects of God's wrath. But God, he says, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. This is the good news. Paul goes on, he says, we've been raised up together with Christ, and He has made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These verses are so packed full of good news. It's just impossible to take it all in. Paul here speaks of God's love and mercy and grace in these verses I just referred to. In verse 7, he'll add kindness to the mix. This God who is righteous in His wrath is also a God who shows love and mercy and grace and kindness to sinners. In the midst of His fury, God shows favor. In the midst of His wrath, there is mercy to be found. In the midst of His wrath, grace is being poured out. Generally, mercy is understood to mean we are given, uh, we are not given what we do deserve which in this case would be condemnation. And grace is understood to mean that we are given what we don't deserve, which in this case would be salvation. So God doesn't condemn us as we deserve. That's His mercy. And instead He gives us the gift of salvation. That's His grace. God doesn't condemn us the way we deserve. He gives us a salvation we don't deserve. This is what Paul's saying. This is what he means when he says, but God... God has stepped in and intervened in a gracious and merciful way. But Paul wants us to see very, very clearly why God has done this. God has not saved us because of anything in us. 
See, something in us provoked God's wrath. Sin in us provokes God's wrath. But nothing in us can provoke God's grace. Why does God love us? Why does He set His love on us? He loves us because He loves us. That's what Paul says. The love with which He loved us. There's no reason you can seek behind that. No reason you can seek in us. Why did God set his love on us? He loves us because he loves us. Martin Luther talked about the groundless mercy of God. That we can't ground the mercy of God in in anything in us. God shows us mercy because that's the kind of God he is. He is a merciful and loving God. God does not love you because of what you are like. God loves you because of what he is like. And this means you owe everything to the grace and mercy of God. It's all free grace. In fact, that term free grace is really just, uh, it's really redundant. It's like talking about wet water or cold ice. Free grace, grace by definition is free. Grace by definition is not something that can be leveraged or bought or purchased or earned. Grace by definition is a gift. It is the free favor of God, unearned and undeserved. And really what Paul is showing us here is that the grace of God is simply Christ. Christ is the grace of God. God's grace is found in Christ. God's mercy is simply Christ. God's love is Christ. God's kindness is Christ. God's all in all is Christ. Everything is found in Christ. Our whole salvation is found in Christ. He is the embodiment, the incarnation, the manifestation and revelation of God's grace and mercy and love and kindness. It's all found in Him. See, Paul is telling us here not just about God's plan of salvation. He's telling us about God's man of salvation. Jesus who has come to bring salvation to us. Jesus who is our Savior. Jesus who is our salvation. All of God's promises are fulfilled in Him. All of God's grace is found in Him. All of God's love is embodied in Him. If you want grace, seek Christ. If you want mercy, seek Christ. Grace and mercy are found in Him. If you want to know God's kindness, look to Christ. See, outside of God's grace, we're all sons of disobedience. We're following Satan right into hell. Now, because of God's grace, because of that but God, we are following Jesus into heaven. And we are now seated with Him in the heavenlies. What does Jesus do for us? He takes us from the grave to the throne. He takes us from death to new life. And not just any kind of life, but glorified life. The the life of heaven. He takes us from the grave to the throne. Once we were dead in sins and trespasses, now we are alive and seated on God's throne with Christ as kings. Jesus takes us from the unclean grave. That unclean grave. And He takes us from that unclean grave into the heavenly most holy place. He takes us from the most unclean place to the most holy place. He now shares His seat with us at the heavenly banquet table. See that seat that we have with Jesus? It's at a table where we will feast. Where even now we feast. 
We are seated at the heavenly banquet table. There's a place card right there at God's table with your name on it. God is inviting you to be seated at His heavenly table. You are seated at His heavenly table in Christ right now. Paul is saying. Paul wants us to see where once humanity's identity was all wrapped up in sin and trespasses, all wrapped up in death and wrath. Now our identity is wrapped up in Christ. He is the head of a new humanity. And we are in Him. We've been made new. We've been made alive. All that has happened to Jesus has happened to us. All that's happened to Jesus, we now share it. We share in His resurrection. We share in His new life. We share in His ascension. We share in His reign. Jesus was made alive. We've been made alive together with Him. Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand and is seated there now. We have ascended in Him and we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus shares His life with us. He shares His throne with us. He shares His everything with us. See, if we were dead in sin, what does it mean to say that we are now alive in Christ? means we've been raised. We've been made alive. It really means we're all Lazarus's. Lazarus's story is now our story. The Gospel raises the dead. The Gospel is a story of God's power raising the dead. Raising those who are dead in sins and trespasses to new life in Christ. Think about that story of Lazarus we read this morning. The story from John 11. Lazarus was dead. And he was all the way dead. He was starting to decay. He had been in the grave for four days. There was going to be a stench if you opened up that tomb from his rotting, decaying flesh. And Jesus said, roll the stone away. And then Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came out of the grave. Still in his grave clothes, bound hand and foot, Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Lazarus, who once was dead, had been made alive. He once was in bondage. He's now been loosed and set free. Lazarus was dead. And Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, made him alive. And that is what has happened to us. Lazarus' story is our story. Your story is a resurrection story. It's a rags to riches story. It's a dead to new life kind of story. It is a resurrection story. And we need to do justice to that deadness in sin because that's really how we see the magnitude and the power of God's grace. You might ask, how does a dead person hear and how does a dead person hear Christ and respond to Christ? There was no power in Lazarus to make it happen. Lazarus can't claim any credit for what happened to him. Can you imagine Lazarus having been resurrected, trying to give people tips on how to get resurrected? You know, just stay real still you know, in the tomb so you can hear his voice. Listen real closely for his voice. And, and, and hope his voice comes before the maggots have eaten your ears off. Now, it doesn't work that way. That's not how resurrections work. A resurrection is like a creation from nothing. It's the creation of new life where no life was before. 
A resurrection shows the power of God's grace and God's mercy. A corpse can't do anything to prepare itself for resurrection. You can't write a self-help book for a corpse. You can't give tips and techniques to a corpse. It has to be all of grace. If the dead are going to be made alive, the dead are not going to contribute to that. God must do it all. And that's what we see in the story of Lazarus. And that's what we see here in Ephesians 2. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. Here's another way to think about it. This is a little bit uh, lesser of a way, but I think it's still helpful. I've seen these videos on, they'll kind of roll through my Facebook feed every now and then. Videos of, you know, like I say, a, a child who was born deaf. And now he gets those cochlear implants or has some kind of surgery that's going to restore his hearing. And they're videoing this as, as the surgery is wrapping up and now he's coming out and he's going to get to hear for the first time. He's going to get to hear his mother or his father's voice for the very first time. And when he hears his mother or his father saying, I love you for the very first time, he's just overwhelmed with joy. And that's really what's happened to you. When God made you alive, you heard his voice for the very first time. When the Father made you alive in Christ Jesus through the working of the Holy Spirit, you heard his voice for the first time. And of course, he was saying, I love you. That's what you hear. You hear it now. He's saying, come forth from the grave. And now you hear it. And you respond. I've seen this with, with seeing as well, with people's eyes. You know, you have somebody who has been blind all their lives and they have some kind of eye surgery. It's amazing we can do this now and it will restore their sight. And so, you know, they'll, they'll video this person now seeing for the very first time. You know, for the very first time this person can see. And they're so filled with joy and thanksgiving. You know, once they were blind, now they see. Okay. That is our story as well. We were blind and God has given us sight and making us alive. He's opened our eyes. He's given us eyes to see. And now we can see God's grace and God's glory in Christ. We can see the glory of Christ as never before. Before we were dead, we couldn't see anything. We were blind. Now we've been made alive. We see. We see Jesus for who he is. God has given us new life in Christ, new hearing, new seeing, new living. Once we were dead, now we're alive together with Christ Jesus. And we contribute nothing to this. We contribute nothing to our salvation. God does it all. He does it through the love with which He loved us. He does it in His grace and His mercy and His kindness. He's lavished on us. It's all free grace. It's all a gift. It's all mercy. Three times in this passage, Paul says it's by grace. Five, seven, and eight. In those verses, he says, it's by grace, or he speaks of the riches of God's grace, the treasures of God's grace, the, 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 the magnitude of God's grace. The gospel is not some kind of self-help program. It's for the helpless. We can't say God helps those who help themselves because left to ourselves, we are helpless. The gospel is not about a second chance. If you were given a second chance, left to yourself, you would blow that just as you blew your first chance. It's not about... Having two million chances, because you'd blow all those too. The gospel's not about a second chance. It's about a second Adam. It's not about God giving you a new beginning, because you would just mess that up. It's about God making a new beginning in His Son. What did His Son do? His Son went to the cross for us. And when He died on the cross for our sins, He cried out before He gave up His Spirit. He cried out, It is finished. He didn't cry out, now I've done my part. 
so you do yours. He cried out, it is finished. Meaning, your bills have been paid. Your debts have been covered. Your salvation is complete. And then on the third day, Jesus was raised up by the power of God the Father working through His Holy Spirit and that new life He entered into, that new creation He inaugurated in His resurrection, we now share in. And then on the 40th day, He ascended into the heavens. And we are ascended with Him, seated with Him in the heavenlies, reigning with Him in the heavenlies. See, the Gospel message is not try harder. The Gospel message is it is finished. The Gospel message is God's grace does it all. Our salvation is whole and complete in Christ Jesus. But Paul goes on. There's something more we need to see here. How does this glorious salvation become ours? How do we come to own it and possess it? How does Christ become ours? Well, he says in verse 8, it's through faith. Verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By faith, this gracious salvation is ours. Because by faith, we are united to Christ. That's why there's so much emphasis in the New Testament on believing in Jesus, or even it could be read, believing into Jesus. By faith, we are united to Jesus. And so by faith, all that is His now becomes ours. See, the grace is God's doing, and the faith is certainly our doing. But then Paul doesn't want you to make another mistake here and somehow think that then that means that faith, because it's our action, our activity, that faith is somehow our independent contribution to this salvation. That would again contradict everything Paul is saying here. In fact, Paul goes on right away to tell us this faith, he says, is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith is not your contribution to salvation. It's not the one little part you do. It's not like God does the 99% and now you do the one. No, even your faith is a gift. Your faith is a sharing in the faithfulness of Christ. When someone is brought to faith, this is what has happened. Christ is now sharing His faith and His faithfulness with that person. God works our faith in us. His Spirit works through the Word and through baptism to grant us this faith. Yeah, faith is something we do. There's no doubt about that. Faith is a human action. But beneath that, it's something God does in us. If the spirit of the prince of the power of the air can be at work in the sons of, of disobedience, how much more can God the Father, the creator and sustainer of all things, be at work in His sons through His spirit? He is at work in us to bring us to faith. Now, how faith is both our action and God's action, how faith can be both our activity and God's gift is certainly a mystery. How God and man can be at work in the same action. But this is the case. This is what Paul is saying. And by the way, saying that faith is a gift, this means that God gives us our faith, this means that faith does not depend on human abilities, like, say, human cognition or human willing. And because faith is a gift, this means God can give faith even to an infant. 
And indeed, we trust that he does. David says in the Psalter, which was the prayer book for all of Israel, and indeed now the psalm book, the, 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 the hymn book of the whole church, David says in Psalm 22 that he trusted in God even in the womb. Even as an infant, he had faith in God. John the Baptist had faith. He leaped for joy when he got close to Jesus, even when he was in the womb. And Jesus was still in the womb. But he was filled with joy because the Spirit was at work in him. Giving him faith in some way. In fact, I would say it's normative for covenant children, those who grow up in the context of, uh, of God's family, God's church, to, to simply grow up having faith from their infancy onward. They're never going to remember a day when they were dead in sins and trespasses. Nothing Paul says here rules that out. Nothing Paul says here rules out having a quote-unquote boring testimony if you grew up in the church. Growing up simply knowing God from your earliest days. Because faith is not dependent on human abilities, human willing or thinking. Indeed, God can even give faith to the mentally disabled or to someone in a coma. God can reach into anyone's life and mind and heart and give them the gift of faith. If faith is not a gift, then it does depend on those human abilities. And we're cast back on ourselves. Because faith is a gift, we're not. It depends upon God, on God's grace. Verse 9 goes on and says, This salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. And it's so important to see how Paul, his teaching on grace here, rules out any kind of boasting. See, here's the thing. Grace sounds really attractive. I mean, this sounds so good, doesn't it? Too good to be true. It sounds really attractive until you realize it takes away all ground for boasting. And then that grace that sounded so attractive actually becomes very offensive. Because we want to boast. We are boasters by nature. This is what it means to be a sinner. Sinners boast in themselves. We're a self-centered people. We want to be able to boast. Boasting means we prop ourselves up and we look down on others. And that's what sin does. You know, we want to boast in our morality, in our achievements, in our uh, abilities. We want to boast in our race, in our church attendance, in our theology, in our politics. We can turn almost anything into grounds for boasting. And when we boast, we exalt ourselves and we look down on others and indeed despise those we see as our inferiors. Boasting is the expression of a self-righteous heart. Boasting is what makes us go fishing for compliments and demanding thank yous because we want credit for every little thing we do. And we want other people to know how great we are. You're looking for something to boast in. Boasting is what drives racism. Racism is, is, is foolish boasting about your skin pigmentation, your melatonin level. Uh, it, it's foolish. It's boasting that drives identity politics that we hear so much about today. Boasting always divides people against one another. Boasting is a way of glorifying the self. We'll boast about the seats of power and status and prestige we're able to attain to. And we'll, we'll sort of elbow one another out of the way to get to the best seats in the culture, in the economy. But when you realize you already have the best seat in the house in Christ Jesus, when you realize that you have a heavenly seat at God's right hand, 
then you don't have to fight others for the best seats. You realize you've already got the best seat and it was given to you as a gift. And so you don't boast in yourself. You boast in God's grace. So when you realize what you've been given, that yeah, you've been given the best seat already, then you are secure. And you're secure enough to serve others, whether they're going to get credit for it or not. You're secure enough to serve others rather than competing against them. You don't have to see everything as a zero-sum game anymore. You know, there's going to be winners and losers, and I want to make sure I'm a winner. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to play those games. You're so secure. You don't have to boast. You don't have to build yourself up and tear others down. Grace takes away all grounds for boasting. Grace humbles us even as it exalts us. Yes, we are now spiritually alive. We are saved. We are seated in the heavenlies. But none of it is our doing. And so we don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the God who has saved us. We boast in Christ. This is why Paul wants us to know this salvation is through faith. What is faith? Faith is looking away from the self to another. Faith simply means clinging to Christ. Faith means nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Yes, as Paul says in Galatians, the cross is our boast. Christ is our boast. The Holy Spirit works faith in us, and that turns our eyes away from self and to Jesus. Now, Satan's work is to do the opposite, to turn your eyes away from from, from Jesus and back to yourself. So you'll boast in yourself and base everything on yourself. But you're never going to find any safety or security in yourself. If you're looking to yourself, you're going to be forever fearful and anxious. It's only when you turn your eyes away from yourself and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Only when you see Jesus Christ is all in all. Only when you rest in Him. Can your fears be overcome? Only then can you find peace and joy and assurance. Only in Him do you find forgiveness and renewal and transformation. And that really brings us to the end of this passage. Paul's conclusion in this section, verse 10. Paul has just said it's not of works. Works have nothing to do with our salvation. But then he turns around and says, works have everything to do with our salvation. It's all about ultimately producing good works. Paul says we are, we are God's workmanship created, or we could say recreated in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's workmanship. What does that mean? The church is the house God built. And we are God's masterpiece, His architectural masterpiece. That word for workmanship does describe a great work of art of some kind. It could be used for a great piece of music or sculpture or painting or an architectural structure, which it seems to be here. The church is God's magnum opus. God has built us into what we are. And He's continuing to build us. And we are His masterpiece that He wants to show off for all eternity. The only raw material God had to work with were a bunch of decaying corpses. But God has taken us and turned us into something beautiful. He's created something beautiful. Something masterful. 
But here's the thing. If the church is God's workmanship, if we're God's masterwork, his magnum opus, how does the beauty of it all shine out? Where is the beauty of the church seen? Well, Paul tells us here, it's in the good works that we do. These good works are really beautiful works. That's even a way to think of good works. They're works of goodness and beauty. And Paul says they are good works God has prepared in advance for us to do. Which means the same dynamic is at work here as we saw in faith. Just as faith is God's work in us, so our works are worked in us by God. We work out what God works in. God works our good works in us. Our good works are not our gift to God, but God's gift to us. Do you see that? The good works we do, it's not something we give to God, but even those works are given to us by God. This is so important. You know, Sometimes we will think that the good works we do are done in response to God's salvation. Oh, I'm so thankful for God's salvation of me. I'm going to respond by doing good works. And there's an element of truth in that. I'm not, I'm not saying that's altogether wrong. There's definitely an element of truth in that. To see our good works as our response to God's salvation. But it would be much, much better to say the good works we do are worked in us by God as part of our salvation. This, too, is the grace of God. Verse 9, Paul says, it is not of works, lest anyone boast. See, the way of faith and grace are utterly opposed to works that would earn salvation. Salvation can't be earned and deserved like a paycheck. In verse 10, Paul says, in effect, it is of works. Your salvation is of works. These good works produced by grace and arising from faith. These good works that are essential to our salvation, that really are even the whole point of our salvation. These works, too, are God's gift to you. We're saved through faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. God never just gives faith. But in giving faith, He also gives us the works that spring from that faith. We are saved by grace, through faith, but the same grace that creates faith in our hearts also creates obedience in our lives. The same grace that cancels our debts, that pays our bills, the same grace that forgives our sins also transforms our character. And our way of life. So now we walk in righteousness. And we live as sons of obedience. We don't walk in the darkness anymore. We walk in the light. And we don't live as sons of wickedness. We live as sons of righteousness. We've been recreated in Christ Jesus for this very purpose. We are a new humanity in union with Him. We've been raised from the dead. We are now kings seated in the heavenlies. And now Paul's saying, live like it. Simply live like it. Live like the new people you are. Live like the royalty you are. Live the life of heaven on earth. Do the good works God has prepared for you to do. Know that God doesn't just save you from hell and wrath. He saves you from sins and trespasses as well. He makes us new. He glorifies us. He makes us His masterpiece. Let's give Him thanks. 
Oh, great Father, we do give you thanks and praise for such a great salvation. Jesus was dead because of sin, and you raised him up. We were dead in our sin, and you raised us up in him. That we might share in his righteous status, that we might share in his kingly status, that we might share in his new life, that we might share in his faithfulness. Oh God, you have lavished us with mercy. You have saturated us with grace. You have shed your love abroad in our hearts. You've poured out abundant kindness upon us. Help us, oh God, now to live lives of obedience and faithfulness, walking in the way of the good works you have prepared for us to do. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.